Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Brighton Rock Podcast with me, Russell Guyver, my usual co-host, Peter. How are you doing, How are you doing there, Peter? Good, thanks, Russ. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. I nearly said, how the hell are you doing there, which would have been a bit over the top. Anyway, um, yeah, good to have you with us, and as always, and good to have Andy Knott back. Hello, Andy. Hello. <laughs> Sounding very, uh, very uh, ref- refreshed, relaxed. Maybe it's the, yeah. uh, it's the, the lack of stress. where I am. <laughs> Brilliant. Why not? And we have another debutante on the show. It is Albion fan and qualified ref Steve Ferris. Hello, Steve. Welcome to Hello the show. Hello, everyone. Nice to see you. you. Good. You enjoying uh, the sound? Right. Well? Thank you. Excellent. Good, good. Brilliant. Well, we've. Um, I know you're a listener as well, so um, it's great to have you on. Thanks for listening, uh, but also thanks for coming on now as well. Um, we've got a packed show of various bits and pieces. This isn't our, our review of the year episode. We're going to be doing that in the next episode at the Gladstone, aren't we, Peter? We are, yeah. Definitely looking forward to a chicken tikka pie. Oh, um, podcasts are back. <laughs> coming up soon. Um but this one, we're going to go through, there's a few bits of Albion news and a few bits of general football news, conclusion to the season in, in other regards, aside from our own, um, worthy of debate and discussion. So we're going to go into a few of those things. We're recording this on Bank Holiday Monday, 5.30, and it's the day when some big news was announced. Not a complete surprise, I think it's fair to say. Glenn Murray has announced his retirement from the playing side of the game. Um, as of this morning, I think it was, he put it out on Twitter. Um, absolute legends of the club. And um, what do we think about that, guys? I mean, first, let's go to you, Steve, uh, as, as the newbie. Um, tell us what your views are on Glenn Murray. I mean, legends banded around really easily for lots of people. But suffice to say that he's managed to bring two rival club supporters together in admiration for what he's done for each side. And not many people can say they've done that for rivals. You know, he's idolised by Brighton and, of course, by that lot up the road. (coughs) Yeah, no swearing. (laughs) But, you know, he's been brilliant. He's always conducted himself fantastically well. 
he never rubbed the noses in it of the other team when he scored against them. You know, yeah. he's played with humility and will always be remembered for the goals that he scored with us in both sort of parts of his Albion career. Absolutely. Um, Andy, would you go along with that? Anything to add as well? No, not really. I mean, he's undoubtedly the best goal scorer um, I've seen at the Albion. Um, the only one that really comes near him is um, Ujoa. Um But, I mean, Glenn is actually a top 10 Premier League striker in terms of his finishing. Um, unfortunately, mm. especially once he got into the Premier League with us, um, there were aspects of his game that were on the decline. Um, but, you, you know, that season um, that we got promoted, he got, what, 24 goals or something along those lines in that mm. season. And then I think it was 12 and then 13 uh, in his first two seasons in the Premier League. Um, and, and that return, those two returns in the Premier League is outstanding for a team finishing in the bottom half of the table. Um, and I think that's just a register of what an amazing finisher he is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's got 202 goals in his career, including, of course, 111 for us. Um, yeah, he's, he's a finisher at all levels. As you said, there's certain elements of his game which preclude him from really getting in the top top teams. But certainly the finishing itself, his intelligence, his movement, his positioning... Um, his instinct um, for sniffing out the opportunities is up there with the best. He really is that good a finisher. And um, he's really just done it on a consistent basis, hasn't he, Peter? Yeah, and he, it's easy to forget that there was quite a, a while when he was first with us that he wasn't actually that popular. Um, you think back to when he signed, he started off really well, but then he had a lot of injuries for a couple of seasons. And there was the incident after that Brentford game where he allegedly didn't applaud the fans and got booed by a section of our fans at one point. And it was only really once Gus came in that he really started to show his potential, in, including that first game at Southampton where he got two goals and looked so good. And, and from that moment on, I think he just kind of like, you know, improved so much. And I find it very odd that it sounds like Poyet didn't really want to keep him. And it, I find that really odd at the time because he's obviously just been the key part of us going up. And But then for, yeah, when he came back, obviously he was that difference that we needed as he was the first time. You know, he was the, the element that we need to go from like maybe being in and around second and third and fourth to bit, you know going up automatically. And his goals were so crucial. And yeah, as Andy said, the first two seasons, especially with Hewton's tactics, which were quite defensive for him to get the goals that he did were phenomenal. And there were some obviously great goals in there. You know, the kind of some of the games like Wickham away, the first spell sticks out when he got four goals and, um, you know, we won 5-2 there and, and then more recently, obviously, the goals that like Birmingham, QPR, I think have been mentioned quite a lot today, but and also Arsenal home. But I, my, my best memory almost of Glenn is that Arsenal home game when he was going to go through on goal and decided he couldn't do it. So he just turned around <laughs> and went back again and held the ball up because he knew that he couldn't didn't have the pace to outpace the Arsenal defenders. And it was, in a way, it's that sort of knowledge of his, you know, he's, he, he didn't, you know, he knew he couldn't outpace them. So he was just like, well, I'll hold it up. And instead, when we obviously won up. And that was, um, yeah, that sort of thing that sticks to the memory of something, you know, sort of bloke he is. He knows, he knew that he wasn't, you know, able to that quick or whatever. And that's sort of that. But yeah, get him in the, in, the, in the penalty area in front of goal and he was deadly. Yeah, that's a really good memory, actually. I've, I've forgotten about that one, but um, absolute classic. Some of the goals, as you said, Birmingham with the goal celebration, I think it's an injury time winner, yeah. wasn't it? There, ran the length of the pitch to celebrate with the fans that the QPR sets on the ball. 
the ball rolling on that pretty decisive game, wasn't it, where we really knew things were moving in the right direction. Well, at home to Wigan as well, which has been forgotten a lot today. Yeah, that's, that's true, actually. Yeah, the Man United sort of near-post flick finish, superb. The first goal against Palace when we beat them 2-1, of course, um, definitely bears mentioning. Now I've sworn, yeah. sorry, guys. <laughs> um, and many more besides, some some really good finishes. And I think, Andy, in WhatsApp, you you were saying there was a header against Norwich, wasn't there? There was a pretty tidy finish, too, from a Shalak cross, wasn't yeah. it? From a scallop cross, I mean, it, mm. it was just a wonderful move. It was where we taunted them 5 0, which, and I think at that point they were, um, they were still the favourites to go up top at that particular point. Um, and Glenn got a hat trick in that game and, um, mm. really showed. Yeah, I think um, I can remember them going on before the game and saying that we were like, you know, there was quite a lot of talk from the Norwich side that we were like, you know, they were going to take, show us who was boss and that sort of thing and be like dominant. And then, yeah, a bit like that Peterborough away game, the 3-0, there was a lot of pre-match talk for the opponents and then we showed them on the pitch what actually was the reality of it. Yeah, I think, Peter, what you're referring to there is Jake Humphreys, poor Jake Humphreys, who's still suffering for that tweet um, on the subject of Norwich showing us how to play football in the Prem. That that came afterwards, though, that tweet. Uh, Oh, oh, did it? Yeah, that was was when we were in the Premier League. I think it was from Alex Neal made some comments before the game. I seem to remember. Um, I could be wrong, but I seem to remember that there was some... Yeah, when will people ever learn, eh? <laughs> and and what, while we're talking WhatsApp, actually, that there were a couple of goals that um, I did want to mention. What One was the Birmingham away in that 2-1. It wasn't a great mm. goal, but it was a really meaningful goal. Um, and it certainly made the journey back even better. Um, and uh, I also wanted to mention, I think it was the first goal in that 2-0 away win at QPR, which was... You know, very close to sealing our um, our, our promotion, and of course that was followed by um, an even better goal um, by someone that didn't score very many. I think it's you like to sing a song about. We all thought we were going to go up. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's that is the game where I think the wider group all started to think, yeah, yeah with this is Especially it. the next day, everyone else lost as well. I think that was the day as well. So, yeah. I think, I think Reading got stuffed and Huddersfield lost and even Newcastle lost. And it was like, yeah, we're, we're going to do this now. This is, I must admit, yeah. I, I think because of the previous season, I was whole, you know, wasn't convinced until that weekend. And I was like, yeah, that's it now. Yeah. Peter, you have an outstanding memory for worthless football information. <laughs> Yeah, That's one of the reasons he's on it. Wonderful. Well, but happy memories aside from from what's been mentioned or, or including what's been mentioned. Steve, what what are your pickouts from uh, from Murray's time with us, both in terms of goals or or anything else, memory wise? Well, I think you know if we go back to the Norwich game, you know we won five nil, but it was the first goal where he almost did a sneaky George and robbed the keeper. <laughs> of the ball and so like got it in from that such a cute angle and it went in off the near post and it almost like didn't go in but just trickled over right in front of the Norwich fans and that was a good way to start that game off yeah that was great wasn't it a sneaky George moment I like it (laughs) and it really was I mean that that was it again it shows his guile and his um, ingenuity doesn't it to um, take the opportunities when they come yeah, absolutely superb. And he's quite the gentleman, as you said, a man of um, 
sort of great dignity and integrity he seems um he's obviously trying to get into punditry as a future career he's already started doing that he's done some stuff on five live for the radio he's done bbc and sky and i think possibly bt uh punditry on tv as well um that's clearly gonna move on isn't it and a lot of talk about whether he can maybe part-time it as a striker coach for the albion as well <laughs> i wouldn't mind we, we could do with that at the moment Steve. <laughs> Um, but we'll see what his next moves are. I mean, clearly, punditry will be one of them. Whether he'll do anything else, we'll, we'll wait and see. Um, of course, he's been a Brighton resident long term as well, married to a local girl, been in the area, I think, for most of his career, hasn't he? Certainly since the Albion days, anyway. Um, which started, according to Wikipedia, with Workington Reds before going to Wil- Wilmington Hammerheads, then Barrow, Carlisle, Stockport County on loan, Rochdale on loan. He was one of those clubs on loan when I went to see the uh, playoff between those two clubs um, in the mid-noughties, I think. Stockport or Rochdale, can't remember which. Rochdale, I think. Uh, then he was with them permanently. Um, then, obviously, the Albion, Palace, Reading, Bournemouth. Uh, Reading was loan. Um, Albion on loan before rejoining permanently. Uh, then, of course, Watford on loan and a short period with Forrest to round off, where he did get a couple of goals. Um his last two of his career. So he had his 200th with us by my calculations, which is uh, was a good way to finish the Albion stint as well. Uh, Peter, yeah. I must admit, when we signed him permanently, having I, I did wonder about the, whether how he doing in the Premier League at his age. Obviously, he, was not, he wasn't that young. He'd never been that prolific in the Premier League beforehand, although I think probably it's just he hadn't been given that much of a chance. And I did wonder whether if he got promoted, whether, you know, obviously three million wasn't that much and it probably was worth it anyway, but whether it, whether he, you know, had that much impact. So, I mean, obviously he did. He was fantastic for two seasons, but I, yeah, at the time I was, I was not, you know, certain. I wasn't saying we shouldn't have signed him, but I was just wondering if he, he would have had the impact he, he did. Hmm. Andy? Yeah, I mean, well, a couple of things on that. Um, firstly, the the Palace fans were crestfallen that he he left them to go to Bournemouth, mm. and um, there's a lot of talk about transfer fees. I mean, we bought them for three or four million. That's got to be one of the best buys um, uh, Brighton have ever made. Yeah, that's a good shout. Made some good three in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. You know, there's a debate if he's our greatest ever striker, and that's always going to be contested by some people. The, the likes of um, of Kirk and Napier in the past, or obviously more recently, then we have well, Peter Ward as well. More recently, Bobby Zamora has been mentioned, and uh, obviously Glenn, in terms of numbers of goals, is right in amongst it. In terms of when he's done those, some of that um, is maybe another telling factor that it hasn't mattered too much how high up he's gone in the league um, to to do it. Um, it's, it, obviously, it's all very questionable, but I mean, I think his, uh, you know, his, his strike rate is pretty good. I think it's in the middle of, the, again, it's in the middle of the pack. Um, but where, where do you see him um, sitting, Steve? Would you, would you say he's our greatest ever striker? Um, it's always subjective, isn't it? Depending which era you started watching the the club in. I mean, I started in '78, so got to see the best of Peter Ward in his prime. You know, so he would still, for me, Wardy will always be, for me, the greatest Brighton goal scorer. But, you know, didn't really do it in Division 1, as was then. Whereas, mm. you know, Glenn has done it in the Premier League for us over a number of seasons. And what is it? Is it 28 goals I think he scored in the Premier League for us? Mm. And a goal every 211 minutes, I think, I saw a stat. 
which is better yeah. than any of our current crop of players. Yeah. So he would be, so I would always go with Peter Ward first, and that's down to my my age from when I started watching. Then it would be Glenn and then Bobby Zamora because Bobby was brilliant, but in the lower leagues, whereas Glenn's been able to prove it mm. in the Premier League as well. Yeah, I think it's 34 goals in his, his second spell with us. And that probably, sorry, 36, including the loan. No? 49, no, including no. the loan. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, but I, I think a lot, I, of, I think a lot of those are cup goals. I think it's 26 Premier League goals. 26 in the, in the actual Prem, yeah. Because I think yeah. he got 12, 13, and then one against West Ham, yeah. which was one of the only games that he started. And he was actually really, really good in that game. Um, hmm. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, that was good. Well, I mean, obviously, it, he's a legend. As you said, it's often overused expression. It's almost become a cliche to say that it's an overused expression to say it's a, he's a legend. But he really is. He really is. And um, we wish him the very best for the future. Um, before we move on subjects, Peter, back to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand when people say the legend thing gets overused. But on the other hand, we are arguably at our highest point as a club. So surely the mm. players who are playing well now should be legends in a way compared to the ones maybe who are playing better. I mean, obviously you have to take in London City, longevity, that sort of thing. But we are, we've, we've been our longest period in the top flight. So, I mean, mm. surely it, it, yeah, you, it's fair enough to call a player who's been, you know, so successful in that time and other ones like Bruno and that sort of thing as well, a legend because they've been part of the most successful time in the club's history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, moving on to subjects, um, we've also had some good news Um Previous to that, which was Ben White was called up to the provisional larger 33-man squad that we were suddenly allowed to have for the England team preps um, for the Euro 2020 tournament taking place in 2021. Um, so he's on the long list. He probably won't get into the, the final reckoning, although that's not necessarily a guarantee because he's a flexible player. And um, he's been called up. Uh, Godfrey, of course, another player who's very good is similarly flexible not quite as flexible so maybe um white gets a chance if there's any sudden injuries and things could change brilliant for us i mean much as we'd like to see lewis dunk get called up for more than the one cap that he did brilliant news to get young ben called up and it's good recognition isn't it and it shows you can get in the england squad sort of at least uh with the albion after all um who wants to talk on that one well it it was surely his spell at leaves that sealed it <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> they, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? They, they were going on about saying, well, you know, he, um, he, he wouldn't have got in if it wasn't for the lead spell first. Some of their fans actually did come out of that crap uh, in the last week or so. And I'm thinking, hang on, so why isn't Patrick Bamford in the squad then? Um, if he's he playing at Leeds as well, isn't he? So, I don't know. But Peter, I knew you'd want to have some yeah. word on this. Go Patrick on. Bamford, who amusingly said recently that White would have been in the England squad if he'd stayed at Leeds already. So, uh that's uh, quite entertaining. But I mean, I, I mean I'm delighted for White. I'm really underst- I understand why he's been called up over Dunk. I get it because they want to try and bring someone through who's not playing. What I don't understand is why Tyrone Mings and Connor Cody are in a squad ahead of Dunk because Dunk is head and shoulders above both of those players, both literally and also uh, in ability as well. So I, f- I find it really weird that if you, if you lost Maguire or Stones, I would much rather have Dunk to come in than I would Cody or or Mings, both of whom have really average central halves in the Premier League and really don't rate. You look at the number of, set of, of saves this year that Martinez has made, it's been like Villa's best player, and it's because their defence is pretty average and ordinary, but their, mm. their keeper's been brilliant. That's why they've got a decent defensive record. Yeah. Would you go along with that, Steve? Do you, do you think Dunk should have had more game time with England? 
uh, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, I know we we will be biased being Brighton fans, but he's been consistently for a team that have been down near the bottom, fighting against relegation for a number of seasons. The amount of goals, especially even like this season, we've conceded is so few <clears throat> when we've been under attack a lot. And that's down to the defensive work that he does and marshals that defence. And he scores goals. You know, very little get past him, unless you're the Wolves player, obviously, and then suffers the red card. But, and I think that may have sealed it again for him. And there's something that Southgate just doesn't like about Dunk. You know, he tried him against America for his one cap. But there's no reason why he shouldn't have had additional caps since then. You know. Yeah. And you know, and on the Ben White thing, whereas Leeds think they've created a world class player, what they need to remember is our our loan system at loaning players out is finely tuned to get the best out of our players. It's the same with Sanchez. You know, Ben White's path was clearly mapped out by the club. You know, out to Rochdale, or not that was uh, Sanchez, wasn't it? But you know, with White going out to Swindon, I think it's Newport, and Newport wasn't it? Hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know. So and then obviously onto Leeds, and he's as he's got older, they've given him you know, moved through the divisions to get him to where he is today. So the club have got him to where he is to yeah. into the England squad, and you know, fair play to them, and he's done exceptionally well, and yeah. he's versatile, which. The one thing about Southgate likes is players that can play in multiple positions, which is what Potter's doing for the Albion. You know, you know, we've got a, a Polish international midfielder who's been playing fullback in Mona. You know, and it seems to be the thing for Brighton these days is you need to be able to play in multiple positions. And I think that's how White get into the England squad with it. And and I'm with Peter on the fact how Cody or Mings get in, even if it's whether it's against Dunk or even Ben White, I'll never know. Yeah, I mean, clearly something's not quite clicked, whether they're also in, in training, in the training camp, whether he just didn't gel on a personal level with players, maybe that was an element. I think it's probably more, yeah, just the tactical side of things. For some reason, he doesn't think, or he doesn't believe in him to be that sort of player, but um, who knows? But um, yeah, Peter. Just very quickly, because I know Andy wants to come in, um, all I will say about Ben White and Leeds thing is where were they at 16 when he was released and were they offering him a contract? No, they weren't. And also, um, they think we hadn't heard of them. I, I watched Ben White play, I think, in our last season of championship on loan when, he, when we were at Oxford in the League Cup and he looked pretty good there. And I thought this looks mm. quite you know interesting player well before Leeds had ever heard of him. So it's complete rubbish to say Brighton fans had never heard of him before he went to Leeds. They, just, they, they basically just talk shit all the time. And yeah. <laughs> as, as, is, as is the way with Leeds. They certainly do. And I've seen him play a few times as well for youth, youth games and things like that. Um, yeah, Andy, Tories, did you want to come in as well then? Yeah, I mean, lots of things to say about this. Um, where do I start? Um, Dunk, uh, I've said this before, um, I, I think the explanation as to why Dunk doesn't play much for England is quite simple, is because he's too similar to Maguire. And as far as I'm concerned, Maguire is marginally better than Dunk. Um, there's not a great deal in it, but if you pick one, there's no way that you can pick the other. Um, but then, White, yeah, I, I agree with you completely about the uh, his adaptability. Um, I mean, really, he's played as a centre-back, as a right-sided centre-back, 
and as a right wing back uh, and maybe a little bit as a right back this season plus the central mid the problem for him is that the right back options are more than covered um i've just had a look at um the center backs in the provisional 33 and there's only six and if there's 26 going in there you'd think that there may well be five center backs going in there um or maybe not because it looks as though Southgate's going to play back four, doesn't it? But mm. I'm certainly of the view that the weakest two of those six are rock bottom is Tyrone Mings, um, and uh, mm. then probably Cody. Uh, I, I, from what I've seen of Godfrey, I think he looks exceptional actually. Um, mm. um and he's probably slightly better in the air than Ben White, which I, I think is big. That's what his big limitation is. But what could work in White's favour is the paucity of um, defensive central midfielders. Henderson might not be fit. Um, mm. There's Rice, obviously, but Phillips isn't there anymore, is he? I think he's, he's injured, isn't he? I think. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, at the moment, yeah. That may well um, work in, in White's favour. Um, but I suspect one of the reasons why um, Southgate keeps on picking Mings is because he's left-footed and he's pretty quick um, and quite good in the air. But um, he, he's, he's a, a little bit um, um, calamitous, um, Mings. And I think Conza has looked far better than Mings has this season for Philly. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Peter, yeah. yeah I, agree with, I agree with what you're saying, Andy, completely. My one question mark would be, I, I agree that you're, you're, you know, he is too similar to McGuire to play alongside him, but surely as backup, you'd take him. rather. You know, I mean, that's a different thing. But I, I agree with you about Conzer. I think he's a lot better than Mings. And I actually also think Webster is a lot better than, you know, Wins and Cody as well. I mean, he's a, I still think he's massively underrated by RBN fans and he's a ball carrying to the half with quite a lot of pace suited ideally to England's mm. game and actually you know he's one who could feel a little bit unlucky about not being in and if he carried on his form from February rather than getting injured he might actually have been close yeah no I, I, I mean he, he was in such a I mean I've been banging his drum for a long time um, Webster but mm. he was in such a rich vein of form uh, going through kind of December January and February well that Liverpool um, game he was massive wasn't, wasn't, wasn't he? then he got injured the next game yeah it wasn't quite as good when when he came back um, but yeah, mm. it's a player I really like. We're very lucky to have so many great, very you know, talented English centre halves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Lots, there's lots in there, isn't there? Yeah. Well, moving on to um, a couple of other quick Albion subjects, we'll we'll switch attack a little bit here. Just one or two bits of news. Um, ex Seagull goalkeeper and goalkeeping coach John Keeley has been appointed to the first team goalkeeping role at Ipswich Town. Um, you guys remember Mr. Keeley? He was good, wasn't he, in his time? Uh, a popular figure, I think. And um, we wish him the best as well. I think he left off for Portsmouth, didn't he, in the, in the goalkeeping coaching stakes. Um, but he's come round full circle to the other, well, round to the other side of the country now. But um, it's, um, yeah, a good role for him. Hopefully, the things seem to be happening at Ipswich. So we wish him well. Um, we're hoping, I don't know if the Gabriel eventually found his tooth in the last game of the season. Uh, Arsenal Brighton, apparently he was scrambling around on the pitch trying to find it after an incident. I'm not quite sure. It's something to do with the celebrations, I think. He managed to get 
lose a tooth or two there, which is a bit bizarre. <laughs> um, is that really true? That's what I've been hearing. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, the other the other thing is, of course, the new kit. We didn't realise we didn't mention that when we were doing the City review, which is when we sported it for the first time. Subsequently, we didn't mention it for the Arsenal review because we didn't really talk about uh, too much of the football anyway. Um, what do you guys make of the kit? I mean, uh, Steve, you've got you've got a kit in the background, uh, framed in the wall, and you've got one on. The one in the background on the wall, by the way, is a, is a work of of absolute uh, beauty, I have to say. You told us off air what it is, but just just quickly reiterate what that is on the wall. Yeah, so my sister got it for me. It's the shirt that Buckley wore at the first game at the Albi at the Amex against Doncaster Rovers. So it sits pride of joy in the in the dining room. So I managed to convince the wife to leave it there. So, <laughs> so it's now part of my Albion's like collection. Oh, a very proud one. An absolute magnificent specimen that is. Superb. Um, something to be proud of. I mean, that, that is some some treat. That one, absolute uh, classic. Um, what about the current kit? What do you make of it, Steve? And have you ordered it already? I've, I've ordered it for myself and my two children. Um, that's what I have to do. Um, yeah. I actually like it. I mean, it's a return to the, the proper stripes. You know, it's, yeah. it's nice to have the one-off as we did, you know, for the current season with the all-blue with the white pinstripes as a throwback to the cup final, almost the cup final era shirt. Yeah. But, you know, I just like blue and white stripes. So yeah. I'm, a, I'm a fan of it. I'm surprised they, they didn't go off with the away, the new away shirt at Arsenal because there's rumours that they might have done that one as well. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know anything about about what that's going to be yet. But uh, in terms of the home home one, I like it. I think it looks good. I don't mind a return back to the stripes for, for sure. Um, it's a V collar, isn't it? And um, I think a panelled back, from what I can recall. Um, it looked good, yeah. I mean, it certainly looked good when we were beating Man City in it, didn't it? Not a bad debut for any kid, that one. Pretty pleasing. Um, so you've been wearing stripes or, or other incarnations of Albion kits, Steve, as you mentioned earlier, since 1978. So tell us about your Albion background in a bit more detail, as we, we traditionally like to ask. Um, where, where, where were you brought up and how did it all come about? So my parents are from Shoreham and I was yeah. brought up in Burgess Hill. So... I'm sure most people know where that is, just north of Brighton. And my dad was a season ticket holder, you know, as I was a little one. And I managed to convince him to take me to my first game on, I think it was December 26, 1978. So the 78-79 season. It's not a bad season to go to start your Albion supporting history. And we beat Cardiff City 5-0. So got completely seduced by the noise of the crowd and we were going to win every game 5-0, as my like 10-year-old self thought at the time. Yeah, it's not a bad way to start, but it is a bit of a, a, a new a curse, isn't it, in a way? Because you've, uh, <laughs> as a young lad, you will have, you will be thinking, yeah, it's always going to be this good. Yeah, yeah maybe the poor draw, I suppose. 75p. 75p. Yeah, I actually used my Christmas money from a grand. Superb, great. And where did you, so whereabouts did you go in terms of in the ground um, for, for the first game and, and subsequently? So first game, uh, we went into the west or southwest. So we yeah. stood up by the up by the tunnel as it was there. And my dad, who was a carpenter by trade, made me the usual traditional stool to, to stand upon, which you'd never be allowed into grounds these days. 
but back yeah. then not a problem so we stood in there and then as I got older obviously you migrate northwards and obviously finished up in the north stand as a 18 year old and, and subsequently until we moved on to delightful Gillingham yeah so so when when was that the sort of north stand era when you started to go there when would that have been would that be sort of mid to late 80s roughly something like that probably about the yeah my father passed away in 83 so that then sort of gave me license in, in that, right. that time for the following season to move with my friends into the north stand yeah so yeah so from about you know that period 80, 85 86 season onwards I was in the north stand. Running. So and we're talking the end. Yeah. So that's Steve Penny era that we talked about when we had yeah. Steve on the show, that kind of era. Yeah, which is great time. Dean Saunders as well, all those sort of characters. Brilliant. Uh, that's great stuff. And um, what about nowadays? You're are you whereabouts are you living and do you have a season ticket and what's your yeah. match day rituals like? So I've had a season ticket ever since my father bought me one back in seventy nine. Yeah. So even when we went to Gillingham, obviously, you know, the with Dean, and I now sit in the the East Stand in the family area, was with my son, but he's now turned 18, so we were due to be kicked out. But given the club allowed us this season to change names on the season tickets, my daughter's now got a season ticket because she's taken over his as my son's off to university this this coming academic year. Right. So, yeah. so I've managed to keep them both, and both of them are mad, Brighton fans now, which is not bad given where we live in Guildford, which is predominantly Chelsea. Oh. <laughs> There's a few Albion fans in Guildford, though, actually. Yeah, we've got a couple of people who are members of Seagulls Over London, haven't we, Peter, I think? Um, so, and yeah. fr friends of friends as well. Yeah, so you're not alone. I'm sure you've run into some Albion fans when your journey's to and from. Yeah, and then we just, you know, we travel down every, every home game, or used to when we could. Yeah, and hopefully yeah. that'll return you know, for the forthcoming season. Yeah, yeah, superb. Well, in one of the later parts, we'll get into talking about the other side of your uh, football connections, uh, not the Albion ones as such, but your refereeing. And that's going to come up a little bit later. We've got some other general football news to chat about as well, but we'll take our first, first break there and be back shortly. So back with part two then, football news in general, guys. Um, quite a bit's been going on managerial-wise, European finals and playoff finals-wise. Here we go as a quick run-through. So we, I think we've already mentioned that Nuno is off uh, from Wolves. Um, there's been rumours of Pochettino uh, maybe coming back to Spurs, amongst others. Rafa Benitez is also being linked. Um, Nuno himself, various other people in the running. Um, there's been changes at other and up and down the um, the country and elsewhere. Abroad, you've had Conti's left Inter, but apparently might be going to Real, because Real apparently have sacked Zidane. Um, Allegri's going back to Juventus. There's all sorts going on here, and um, it's absolute chaos. Um, of course, Palace are without a manager as well, and as we were just saying off-air, they're going to be rushing time-wise to get a manager in, and then to, if that manager is getting players he wants in, there's going to be a bit of a tight turnaround there. So, um, Eddie Howe is one name in the frame for Palace. Um, he's reputedly turned down the Celtic job, I think, on the grounds of something to do with his backroom staff allowance. Um, 
So it looks like he might be in the frame. Sean Dyche is someone they, they keep mentioning, but I don't think it'll go that way. Lampard has turned Palace down, which is amusing. Um, and apparently so, anyway. Peter, yeah, go on. I was going to say, if anyhow, has the problem that uh, is reported at Celtic, I don't think it'll be any better for Palace because it's reported that he wanted this back from staff from Bournemouth and Bournemouth wouldn't play ball. Whether that's true or not, and whether he, you know, he could have turned it down because he thought he'd get a Premier League job. But yeah, it's. Yeah. it's it's a limited options of Palace. I think it's an interesting job. It's somewhere that could actually really make someone and really... I think Steve Cooper at Swansea was linked with them as well, and now obviously mm. they've not gone up. But I wonder if it's, it's something that could really make your career because you get the chance... You don't often get a chance to build up half a squad in almost the Premier League. You normally get... You know, you can only change a few players. On the other hand, though, it could also really go wrong because they've got a lot of players to bring and a lot of players to, to you know, build together. And we all know what happened last time they changed their manager and went a completely different direction was when they brought in De Boer and he went last his six games. So they obviously aren't that yeah. patient if it doesn't work out immediately. So it's, it's a difficult one because they obviously want to play more attacking football with a new squad and a new manager. And that's a lot to do in a... I mean, we did two of those things with Potter and it took a while to get, you know, to, to work in some ways. Hmm. Three of those things with a lot of new players as well is, is tough. Yeah, and assuming they're not going to want to keep all those players on, there's going to be a load of signing on fees, some transfer fees. It's going to be costly... Um, notwithstanding the fact they might, yeah, they might, yeah, they might want to get a manager who they might have to pay a fee to compensation to get, but if it's Dyche or Cooper or someone like that, um, and if they do want to keep those players, should they? I mean, they might be able to do things on the cheap by keeping some of those on. Um, one or two you would imagine they would want to keep. Some I'm not so sure would be advised. Um, but they might end up doing that. It all depends. Um, Interesting times. Um, also, of course, um, Roy Hodgson leaving Palace. There seemed to be the impression that he was retiring and standing down, but it does now seem to be the case that he might actually be looking for another another role. He just wanted a change of scenery. Um, he's been linked with the West Brom job, where he's still very popular. West Brom um, looking for a new manager. Chris Wilder is a, another name in the frame there. Um, of course, Wilder's former club, Sheffield United, have appointed Slavisa Jakanovic, which I think is a good appointment. Um, gives them a pretty good chance of bouncing straight back up. Um, and putting to bed the demons of last season, which was, as we can now call it, which was pretty uh, pretty poor for their side of things. But um, he's a good manager. He's he got Watford up. Um, in fact, he left Watford, didn't he, after getting them up, which is a bit bizarre, something over transfer budgets. But, Not um, bizarre Watford, I don't think. Sorry? They changed their manager. I mean, it really, yeah. I wouldn't say anything's bizarre at Watford. No, that's true. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a real merry-go-round. It's a cliche. Fulham wasn't really given that much time there as well. So I think in the Championship, he's proven to be a really good appointment. And in the Premier League, he's not really been given a proper chance yet by anyone. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And um, it is, as I said, the proverbial cliche that the managerial merry-go-round is afoot. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if anyone's got any comments on that, but I was going to go on to talk about the Euros, if not. Uh, but Andy does have a comment. Let's, let's go to you, Andy. Yeah, yeah in, ter- in terms of the... I mean, it, it, you talk about managerial merry-go-round. It's far more prominent this close season than it has been. Yeah. And hmm. um, from the limited um, understanding that I have, um, and it was interesting that you mentioned Rafa, uh, is because the Chinese have kind of withdrawn their hyper-investment in football. Um, mm. And this um, informed um, Conte's decision to leave AC Milan because, the, the, I mean, the timing's very, very strange there. Um, Inter, isn't it? Inter Milan. Inter, mm. I think. Yeah. Uh, I always yeah. get those two mixed up. Um <laughs> But um, 
it was cited that um, he was having to generate eighty million pounds worth of uh, of player sales, um, and mm. you know if he goes to Real Madrid, they're another team that got some serious rebuilding to do. I mean, they're they're uh, even older than Palace actually their squad um, in terms of yeah. their, their key players. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it, it's just all very, very strange. I mean, uh, obviously the three teams that have come up, I think, um, in terms of next season, uh, are relegation candidates. Um, uh, but the four other teams that I would be a little bit concerned about are Palace Wolves, Southampton, Burnley. Um depending on, on what happens. Um, uh, and in terms of us, so long as a, a few things fall into place, I, I'm, I'm slightly less concerned about us. But, the, you know, one of the key unknowns is um, post-COVID, or not post-COVID, in the midst of COVID, what's going to happen to transfer fees and so forth. Mm. Now, at the elite level... Um, I can't really see um, them reigning back um, because um, most of the owners of the top clubs that wanted to break away into their own league uh, are run by oligarchs, sheikhs, who've got bottomless funds, yes. as it were. But um, And uh, that still means I think that Basimo will probably leave us for a large sum, um, but I, I just wonder if a little bit further down the food chain, the, the transfer fees aren't quite so inflated, the the wages aren't quite as high as they've been going, because the also the latest um, TV deal that was signed um, didn't increase as it has done over the last 20, 30 years. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think you're probably right on all that, Andy, to be honest. And uh, you must be disappointed, speaking of Petro dollars, that Bournemouth missed out on the uh, playoffs. We'll come to the playoffs in more detail in a minute. But look at that smile on his face. <laughs> a Cheshire grin. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a transitional time, isn't it? Really don't know what's going to happen with the summer and you know, with the Euros in there to complicate things in terms of transfer timings. A lot of people saying at, at Spurs they don't want the fuss about Kane. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, England, at uh, Southgate, saying he doesn't want the fuss about Kane transfer shenanigans going on when they're trying to organise a tournament. Um, it's difficult timings because everything's still in this compressed diary, effectively, isn't it, really? Um, but, yeah. I mean, the, the point that you've just made just indicates that our stability is a real strength at this point yeah mm. yeah I've, I've had a listen to the palace podcasts um just to hear what they're saying and rounding up their season and um while they're gloating about finishing above us which i don't know how they've managed to do that really um it's, it's gravity defying isn't it really but um but not aside from that i think that they are worried about their future in terms of there's a squabble in the boardroom about who or there's rumors of a squabble about who they want to appoint um for the manager role the fact it's a manager, not a coach, effectively, they don't really have that infrastructure or that that cohesion. And, and we certainly do. And I think they're looking on with jealousy. They 
they did allude to it without saying it um, ostensibly, but clearly they are looking at clubs like us, um, aside from the rivalry, they're looking at us and thinking, that's really what we need to be doing. Maybe not the same model, but a model that's solidly put in place and is being seen through. Teams like Brighton, yeah. Another cliche. We're ticking them all off tonight, aren't we? <laughs> um, I'm expecting you to throw a few more in in a minute, Steve, as well. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but Peter, have you got a cliche? Yeah, I was just going to agree about the infrastructure. I don't think that we had there's any better chairman in Premier League than Tony Blue. I don't think there's any better chief executive than Paul Barber. I don't think there's any better director of football than Dan Ashworth. And that, yeah. that is kind of like we literally have the best three, I think, of any Premier League club. Mm. The top, I'm sure there'll be some people, some clubs who argue. But you look at some of the people in, in those positions at other clubs and you think, well, you know, I think I think literally, you know, if, and there was a lot of fuss about whether Potter might go to Tottenham and that sort of thing, which I, I wouldn't want him to. I don't want us to be in a situation with the free manager, but I know that we will be in a situation where we could actually get a new someone in and it would be someone who fit right as well because we've got that mm-hmm. infrastructure in place that we know what we need. And we'd have someone that, you know, when eventually Potter does go, either because it hasn't worked out or because he's done so well that someone picks him up. <clears> We'll have we'll have plenty of options already in the plan. We won't be like throwing it round like we've done in the past, maybe in pre- previous, you know, uh, you know, during the Withdean years, yeah. where we were just like desperately going for anyone we could find, you know, and actually did quite mm. well generally. But at Withdean, we didn't have a position of power, whereas now we do, and we're you know a relatively stable Premier League club coming to five years now. Although we've never done, never been above like fifteenth, but and I think it's a real you know strong position to be in. That you know, even if we're not going to suddenly change our way of start, start of playing like Palace seem to want to do this summer. Yeah, well, well said. And um, speaking of Dan Ashworth, we had him at Seagulls over London for a, a Zoom event last week. And if anyone's in any doubt about how impressive he is, he's every bit the same kind of um, from, from the same pod as as uh, as Paul Barber, isn't he? Effectively, he's, he's very articulate, very well, and very clearly uh, articulating his points. Um, there's a clear focus. There's a clear message, and he's very personable as well. He you know he handles those situations um, extremely. Um, extremely clearly and extremely well and he's you can see there's cohesion throughout the club and it was emphasised further by that event last week which was excellent really really enjoyed that um, Andy back to you yeah I mean just on that because obviously I wasn't here and I, I would imagine most of your listeners weren't there um, hmm. did he um, expand upon the scouting network because that seems to have been for a step change since he's been there. So uh, I, I don't know if any of you were um, sharp enough to to get him onto that terrain. You, I'm looking I'm at you, tr- Russell. And you I'm trying not. to remember, actually. Peter, um, Peter might recall better than oh. me. I, I don't I can't actually remember specifically. Scouting was discussed. Um, I think, by and large, the answer is yes to what you've just asked. But... Um, in detail, I can't recall exactly what was said. Um, if I do, we can we can reiterate that onto a reiterate that onto a later podcast. But um, yeah, it, it, it covered all of all of the subjects in a lot of detail, um, and I, I actually need to kind of try and recall <laughs> a little bit better than I can do on the spot at the moment. But, um, but yeah, it, it, essentially, all of the elements were were talked about it in terms of um, how we're now looking at recruiting players. Um, it's pretty much the international uh, permissions kind of route now. Now that obviously post Brexit, etc. He was talking about that in more detail. He's talking about the levels they go into in studying the players' activities in general, just everything from social media through to you know all, all the finer details of what they're doing on the pitch. Um, 
it seems that everything is very extensive, very comprehensive. And he also said that, that the um, everyone behind the scenes feels the pain of any defeats as much as we, the fans, do. They really, really are pushing in all in one direction all the time. So, so when it goes wrong, it's it's agony. Um, but I, I think probably moving on, just got a conscious time, it will tick by otherwise. But um, speaking of agony, of course, the playoff weekend is upon us. Um, we've just completed, as we record this, the final one of the three playoffs um, over this bank holiday weekend. And we now know that Brentford have beaten Swansea in the final to get into the Premier League for the first time. And they're in the top flight for the first time since I think it's 1947. There were some people at the grounds, I think the chairman being one of them, who actually remember them being in the top flight last time. So fair play to them. But um, yeah, it's been a hell of a long time. They've been pushing at the door for two or three years. I like Thomas Frank and I like the way that they play. I like the way they seem to be organised as well as a club. Decent fans from those I've met. So I'm, I'm happy to see them up. Congratulations to them. Also to um, Blackpool, who've been through the wars, haven't they, with their um, owners of the past. They've got a new owner over the last couple of years. They've got back on the straight and narrow. One fan um, at the playoffs being interviewed said that, in a way, it's probably a blessing in disguise that they got out of the Premier League because they eventually and indirectly got rid of the Oystons. Um, they had to start back up from League Two, but they've now come right back up to the Championship. So congratulations to them on winning. They did beat Lincoln, a team I quite like as well. And I've got a mate of mine who sometimes listens to this pod. So commiserations to Az, if you're listening, Az. Um, he was at the game, actually, as well yesterday. But um, they'll, they'll be pushing again. They're doing something quite similar to the Poyet revolution in League One for the Albion. And Liam Brickart, who plays for them now, said something along those lines. It has the same feel. So I'm sure they'll they'll have their day. But congratulations to Brentford, to Blackpool, and to today's winners, which is Morecambe, who have gone into League One for the first time in their history. Traditionally a non-league club. They've finally done it 1-0 today um, in a tight affair. Extra, extra time winner from um, Carlos Mendes Gomez, I think his name is, who's a bright young thing. Um, so, yeah, congratulations to them. I've had some exchanges communications with Morecambe fans in the past and they're a good bunch as well from what I could gather so um, so great for them uh, Peter yeah I was going to say I mean I, I kind of wanted Newport to win today to be honest but I, I think Gareth Adams to be, in fairness to him must be the Morecambe manager must have done one of the best jobs of anyone this season because they are perennial strugglers down the bottom of that league and they often are like bottom four or bottom five they've got a very low budget and he's yeah to take them up is a fantastic achievement and to end up you know, they'll be playing teams like Sunderland and Ipswich next season and Portsmouth, which is, you know, amazing for their fans. And I'm very, obviously very good that they've done it and hopefully they can now go back to games next season because, I mean, they'll be really struggling to compete at that level. Although mm. Accrington have done it, which is amazing. The other interesting stat I read earlier is it's only the second time, I think I read, that the playoffs have been won by the three teams who would have gone up if they'd had the, the top three or four go up. Ah. So the yeah. top team won every single playoff, which is... I suppose, deserved, in fairness. You can't really argue with that. And I think yeah. it's about time Brentford came up. They were third last season and lost the playoff final. So I'm hoping, though, that their attacking brand of football will leave them very open next season. Um, you know, in a way, it's similar to Norwich, not so similar to Leeds. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Steve, what do you make of that little lot? You kind of, I mean, a lot of it is as a neutral, isn't it, really? But in terms of particularly the Premier League one, uh, Brentford coming up, what did you make of that? Happy? Apprehensive. I'm dead chuffed for Brentford. You know, it's always a good away away day, as it was then at Griffin Park, but now at the new stadium, you know, I think their fans deserve it. Their business model and how they operate as a club is fantastic. You know, they pick up players, typically 
strikers from lower league clubs and churn, churn them out in, in a for millions of pounds thereafter. You know, obviously, Ben Rama, Mope, you know, to name but two. And obviously, Tony, you know, may now stay with them, but he surely would have gone if they hadn't made it. But, you know, really pleased yeah, with them right. to have got out. The stats are incredible, actually. If you look at their, um, their sales, I've got a, a graphic here. It says Ollie Watkins to Villa for 33 million and Cy Benrahma to West Ham for 26. So that's a hell of a haul to, to get. But to sell those two players who were undoubtedly their stars of last season and to then go up uh, where they've missed out in similar circumstances last year, that, um, that in itself is impressive, isn't it? Yeah. More pay for about 20 million. Previously, Scott Hogan, they sold for 12 mil to Villa. Consa, actually, who got mentioned earlier by Andy. Also went for 12 mil the same year, I think. Chris Meppen to Bournemouth for 12 mil. And going further back, Andre Gray to Burnley for 9 mil. Ryan Woods to Stoke for 7. And Jota, one of the Jotas anyway, and the Spanish one, went to Birmingham for 6 mil. So, you know, they've, they've got a really good business model there. But the impressive bit is, is that most, that the, the earlier parts I mentioned there, the, the most recent sales to go up when you've sold those two players. Just shows that they've got a business model that works. They've got they've got a progression plan. They sold their crown jewels last year, yeah. and have managed to replace it. You know, with you know, with with Tony, who's been banging in goals for fun for them. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, it's pretty impressive stuff, isn't it? And Tony was, I, I, yeah, he was definitely going to be a Premier League player next season, wasn't he? It was just a case of whether it might be with Brentford or not. Now we know it might be, and probably will be. I think he'll he'll stick with them, but who knows? Uh, West Ham will probably throw some money at it, won't they? They usually do. Um, uh, any other points on the playoffs before we move on to our next subject? Well, uh, I, I guess right. I'd obviously like to commiserate with Bournemouth or Plucky, as they're known as, for <laughs> failing, failing in the playoffs. <laughs> that's just historical really <laughs> yeah yeah so, so would i couldn't happen to uh, uh more deserving lot <laughs> indeed indeed well moving on some other gloating from my point of view quite enjoyed the europa league final man united flopping i mean de gea five years penalty saving drought um Hendo, much the better goalkeeper, not put in for the shootout, which I think is a huge tactical error on Solskjaer's part, if you ask me. Remember that Dutch substitution at the last minute in one of the uh, yeah. World Cups or Euros? I mean, that's what he should have been doing there. It's Villarreal's first ever Euro trophy, making the smallest town to have a Euro final winning team ever. Um, 50,000 capacity, the, the town. The ground has got 25,000 capacity, so that doesn't seem to fit right, does it? Um, but fair play to them. I mean, that's... Um, that's a pretty pretty small club in essence, or in theory. The Yellow Submarine, of course, is their known. Uh, what did you make of that, Peter? I was going to say, yeah, well, A, I mean, if they, on that basis, yeah, I mean, most of most the Brighton ground would be 125,000 people, wouldn't it, if you're expecting half, <laughs> half the area to turn up. Um, but I was going to say, I don't think anyone's ever had a worse come to shoot up than De Gea. I mean, to miss all 11, and then, especially when you've then been, t- been said afterwards that you went against the instructors, the kind of like all the scouting that was done before that, and then also to miss your own. I mean, that, that really, is, I don't think anyone could do any worse than that, could they? It's so like, he disregarded all the all yeah, the apparently he well. some notes from his from mm. the coaches and that sort of thing, and he and he didn't you didn't focus, follow them or something or mm. some report afterwards. Blimey. Well, I I have to say the penalties in uh, um, were extraordinary. They they were of a quite exceptional standard. Um, from 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 both teams um, in that in stark contrast to the game um, where Villarreal were extremely well organised, I thought 
um, and United didn't turn up hmm. and oh. suffered the consequences for it. United do have ways yeah. of winning when they when they don't turn up, mainly by getting penalties after after full time and shoving players over in the area. It mainly seems to be the way they <laughs> win when they don't turn up. Yeah, obviously, well, Alberto. Still, obviously, you know, just to clarify. Former Liverpool player Alberto Moreno was um, enjoying himself, apart from the fact that he was in the team that won. He was also gloating about it on video footage that he posted on social media, talking about you'll never walk alone and that one's for you, Liverpool, and uh, all this sort of stuff. So um, I'm sure he's fully endeared himself again with Liverpool fans and probably slightly irritated Man U supporters. I'm just guessing on that one, but uh, <laughs> um, a good bit of shithousery there. You've got to, got to love it, haven't you? Um, keeping on the Euro themes, Lille managed to see off PSG to win the French. French title and Atleti saw off Real, which was even more delightful for me. And I absolutely love seeing those guys fail. Um, so congratulations to Lille, congratulations to Atleti on finishing the job. Very satisfied with that. Invented Flukes a uh, last a late fourth point. Yeah, Napoli conceded was, a late goal. That was quite annoying. Yeah. yeah, Napoli miss out on the Champions League as a result, don't they? It exactly. was annoying. Yeah. I have to say. And also, congratulations to Lewandowski, who's beaten Gert Müller's Bundesliga single-season scoring record um, from four fewer appearances, apparently, on the last day of the season. I, I actually didn't catch the figure, so I'm not sure how much that was. 41, but, uh, Just the 41, was it? Blimey. <laughs> um, yeah, quite impressive. Speaking of German football, Peter, go on then. Over to you. Yeah. Anything you'd like to say? Um, how, how did Werder do this season? Oh, delightfully, yeah. yeah. They've been asking for relegation for a few years, my German support, German team, and finally they've, they've managed to achieve it. They've gone down, not even in the relegation playoff spot. They finished second bottom. Um, they dropped into it, I think, at the last moment. Yeah, it was home scored like, quite late on and then went on to yeah. win the playoff final against Holstein Kiel, I think it was. Uh, they lost the first leg at home 1-0, weirdly, and then, but then won 5-1 away. So... <laughs> obviously an interesting one so I was quite hoping yeah. Cologne would go down because we were linked with one of, one of their left wing backs and I thought well it'd be easy to get him if we want him if, if they go down but yeah. yeah yeah. so they're joining Hamburg next season in the uh, in Bundesliga 2 so we get the Nord Derby back and uh, Hamburg mm. get a chance to embarrass themselves in that again Brilliant. Yeah, we'll look forward to renewing rivalries on that yeah. one Peter soon um, one final thing on the Euro theme just a thought, really. Benzema, he's been recalled to the France squad for Euro 2020 in 2021. And he could well end up winning a trophy in July and then go to jail for up to five years in October, should his court case go wrong. Um, this is to do with a conspiracy, I think, to do with a, uh, a blackmailing case of some sort. Um, crazy stuff. Um, it's been a long running uh, case. People would have heard of it some time ago. But apparently that's, um, yeah, that court case is happening after the Euro. So a bit of a bizarre year there. It could be the very best and worst of times for him. Um, and just in other... Sorry, yeah, go on, Andy. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I don't really want to speak about Benzema at all um, as I know nothing about it. Uh, um, but I one thing that you haven't you mentioned... Uh, talking about things we don't know about. <laughs> um, one thing you haven't mentioned was the Champions League final. Um, and as oh, much yeah, we as didn't it, mention it, um, did we? Yeah. yeah. It grudges me to say so. Um, I thought because I hate them with a passion. Um, <laughs> Chelsea deserved it. I mean, Tuchel's done an amazing job. Um, it was a very strange selection by Pep, um, not playing a defensive midfielder. Um, 
but I think Chelsea very much deserved it. They've got some players that I really, really like. They they seem to be kind of honest, genuine pros. Uh, none better than the stand-up player in the final, who, mm. who was N'Gola Kante. And if you think yeah. about N'Gola Kante, he's got some um, collection of medals that he's mm. generated. Um, yeah, he's going to have one this summer as well because I mean, the France. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd probably set them as my favourites. Yeah, I mean, he was outstanding. I thought Chelsea's def- Chelsea's defence was outstanding, wasn't it? As well, um, I think Chilwell particularly stood out. Um, I think, well, Reese James as well. I, th- I think the, the whole team really they were just so solid. They just didn't seem to be broken down. And I, I agree with you, Andy, that. You know, Pep, I don't know why, he just seems to tinker with the, with the formation. Unless it was a necessity, yeah. which I don't think it was. He, he tries to be to overdo it, doesn't he, in the finals? I'm not sure why. When he's not started him for ages and he's not really played much. Mm. And yeah, there were some yeah. odd, odd, odd decisions. But yeah, I mean, I, I'll have things I didn't see the Champions League, but I heard pretty much that Kante ran the game, basically, and kind of, he is a mm. brilliant player. I mean, Leicester got such a good deal for him originally, and... I think probably overall Chelsea did as well, even though he spent quite a lot more than obviously Leicester did. I know yeah, he's speak- probably the only one in her position, other than Fabinho, maybe, who is above Basuma, clearly, in terms of yeah. ability. Yeah. Of course, Chelsea. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Chelsea due to some of their fans' behaviour through the years. But um, I have to say, you know, congratulations to them on that, on that because it was an excellent performance. Um, they join Liverpool, Man United and Nottingham Forest in being a more than once winner of the top European tournament. Um, the other one that's won, of course, is Villa, who only won the one. Um, so five English teams have won it. Four others have appeared in finals and not succeeded. Peter's favourite team, of course, Leeds United. <clears throat> Arsenal, Spurs, and now uh, Manchester City join the party. Um, who will be the tenth English team to get into the Champions League final? I wonder. Maybe oh, the Albion. Likely. <laughs> um, you mentioned Leicester just now. Interesting stat there. They've spent ninety-three percent of the days in the last two Premier League seasons. That's five hundred and sixty-seven days in total in the top four only to drop down very late and finish fifth in both seasons. That's pretty agonising, isn't it? Um, interesting stat, though, it is. Um, and also in 2020-21 Premier League season, it's the first time ever that in all four divisions, actually, um, where there were more away wins, 153, than home wins, 144. No, I didn't count that up myself. Um, I've just caught that offline somewhere. But um, obviously this is a sign of the... The lack of fans in grounds. It's amazing. It's like, yeah. 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 I've, I've just got a question considering you are on top of the stats on this, Russell. Um, what happened once fans got back into the stadium? Because I think that the home, it, it did tilt very much towards the home win. It wasn't just yeah. us that did it. Um, yeah, that's right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The majority of the games from recollection were wins. Um, Sheffield United managed to win a game. That was that was something to start with. Arsenal beat us. We beat City. Liverpool beat Palace. Um, I think Saints won their home game, didn't they? I can't remember now, actually. But they, there's a number of them, you know, and, and obviously, um, you know, it, it does make a difference, doesn't it, really? But uh, it's good to see some fans back. Um, one person that won't be back next season on the Football Focus couch is Dan Walker, Crawley's own. Um, 10, no, 12 years, I think it is. Him and his dog, Winnie, are no longer to be seen on the Football Focus couch. They've packed it in. I only just caught up with last week's Football Focus, well, the week before last now. Um, 
where it was quite an emotional farewell. So they did a good job there of uh, bringing him close to tears. Um, but he's he's been a good presenter. They've got Alex Scott coming in next, which will be interesting. She's not done any presenting out and out that I'm aware of, although maybe bits and pieces. Um, but we'll see how she does, and we wish her well. Um, we also wish Simon Ruskwell. He's in the National League, of course, with Stockport after leaving R23s. I note they've finished the season, the, the regular season, in third place, which means they're in one of the two primary spots for the, the playoff campaign. Um, so we could see him as a league manager next season. Um, any thoughts on that one quickly, guys? He's done a good job. To be fair, considering his mm. first job in, you know, managing senior team, he's done really well and yeah. actually moved him up because they were like Bill well below Hartlepool and Torquay and Tuscan, I think, when he went. So he's he's taken him up on it. Yeah, it is crucial being in the top three because it's not just about home mm. advantage; it's about having one fewer game as well, which is obviously a big bonus. Yeah, I think he's quite a he's quite a suffer no fools kind of persona as well. He's quite brusque, is Rusk, I think. Um, so he's he's quite a, you know, he's, he's quite a. Um, a strong character, I think. So he's probably got a good future in the game as long as he marries that up with, of course, emotional intelligence, motivating players at the right time and, and so on. But um, yeah, good luck to him as well. Okay, that brings us to the end of our second part. And um, guys, we've got one final bit where we're going to bring Steve back into the equation more heavily as we talk refereeing. Oh, this is going to be fun, isn't it? <laughs> back in just a moment. So we're back with part three then. It is Peter and Enot, and it is our debutante guest, Steve Ferris, uh, on this episode, episode 145. Um, and Steve, I don't know why I did that voice. Uh, Steve, you are a qualified referee. Tell us about that side of your, um, well, your football connection and um, what, what level you're at, the process yeah. just briefly on that, on how you came to be a ref. Not a problem. So... When I turned 35, gave up playing, I thought I don't want to be a manager or a coach because I know how much of a a git I could be to manage and coach. So I thought I'd drop onto the dark side and become a referee and see if I liked it. You know, because I, I gave enough abuse out to referees when I was playing and thinking, right, what's it like sitting the other side of the fence? So I qualified and did my first few games and actually thought, actually quite good fun because I could have empathy with players you know could see especially when you start off at the low level uh, level seven once you're qualified as a referee you do park football you know and there you've got would-be players that think they are the Zidans of this world and and clearly not and challenges are late but you try and empathize with it and I've worked my way up now and stopped at, at level five which is a senior county referee because beyond there, you then become part of the contributory section of refereeing, and then you have to give up your Saturdays for football because you're at the, the beck and call of your county association. So I weighed up, now do I want to give up support in Brighton to follow a career in refereeing or get to a good level, as I saw it, but allowed me to continue the passion of watching Brighton. So I chose that. So stayed at my level five. My son referees, and he's got his level five this year. And he wants to he wants to continue on to do level four, three, and actually go through to the select groups if he gets that far. But he gets quite competitive, believe it or not, given that you see some of the referees at PGMOL who could do with 
maybe shedding a pound or two <clears throat> to become fitter, given the game's got so much quicker. So we all have to undergo yeah. fitness assessments every season when you get oh, up. Oh, right. So they pass them. You know, you don't get on that level if you can't pass them. And they are quite strict with it. So there okay. is, and which is why it's quite surprising when certain of our colleagues are refereeing and look unfit because they are. Okay. You have to be reasonably careful, I guess, being yeah. a referee as well. Yeah. Maybe well, they just like they're just really kind of <laughs> driving their fitness before the test, and then like let themselves go after that every year, and then like have to like kind of really focus on the month or so beforehand. <laughs> Once well, they pass, they have all the beers and the pies after that point. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> at that elite level, you you tested regularly at your your monthly camps. I know. So, I wasn't being. Different. I know. I'm eating and that's fine, but. <laughs> Yeah, and I, you know, I've met a few of the Premiership referees, and everyone's favourite villain, Mike Dean, is actually a really nice guy to talk to. Questionable choices, shall we say? And not going to mention Middlesbrough final game of the season, and Dale Stevens being sent off because someone decided that it hurt even more than it looked. So. I don't know if you know, but I'd love to get Mike Dean on this podcast. That would be at one of my favourite moments if we could do that. I don't know if you've got any contact with him. Because I want to ask him, and actually I'll ask you the same question on, the, on that sure. one. The, the, the incident itself, I think we, we, we all know that was, a, that was a harsh sending off in general. Yeah. Um, clearly he looked at the injury and then made a decision. or That was part of what was obviously going on there. The bit that bugged me was... The yellow card being knocked out of his hand, and as far as I could see, he didn't get booked for knocking the card out of the referee's hand. He should have been booked for that, shouldn't he? It's Isn't always that it's that a questionable one of is it does it fall under ungenerally conduct? You know, hmm. we all remember the the time when Paul Gascoigne showed when the referee <laughs> yeah. in Glasgow <laughs> dropped the, the card and he showed it to him you know, for dropping it and then got carded himself. So the good thing about refereeing, it's your tolerance levels. You know, the bit that I think we, we've lost a little bit is the referee refereeing it from their point of view. And you'll see certain referees will always put up a foul. And certain ones, because their tolerance level on what constitutes a foul or dissent will vary. And that's part of human nature of how you referee that game. And I think since VAR's come in, everyone's appreciated. Actually, referees in general did not a bad job. And with the way that you've got two different people now viewing the same situation, one in the VAR booth and on the, on the field of play, is two opinions of what it is. And I know Andy had his hand up, so I'll, I'll do the host thing and say, Andy, yes. <laughs> no, I mean... My view is the reason why VAR came in is because um, football fans are partisan and all they do after a game is moan about refereeing decisions. Um, and I, I really do think that that was one of the key um, uh, uh, factors behind VAR coming in. Um, and uh, yeah. My view is that refereeing is a tough job. Um, I do, I do think the standard in the Premier League um, could be improved, 
I mean, there are obviously standout referees. Um, uh, Kalina is the best one in my lifetime. Um, but equally, um, and as you pointed out already, there are standout football footballers. So everyone can't get to the same level. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, there are a kind of handful of referees um, in the Premier League that um, are good quality, actually. Uh, and I'll yeah. see if I can think about them. Atkinson, um, uh, I'll, 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 I'll think about them. Um, well, Michael Oliver, who's probably our best at the moment. Um, yeah, who, who's, um, I'm, I'm trying to put the name to face, he's got kind of black hair, but it's grand slightly. Um, mm, not sure. Well, if we come to that, we'll come to it. But, I mean, I, I think Mike Dean actually, yeah, by knowledge, is a pretty good ref, isn't he? I mean, he, take the amateur dramatics and occasional faux pas to rather great cost in our particular case on one occasion aside. Um, he is, a, you know, he's a good referee by and large. Um, but P- Peter, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the, the level of Premier refereeing Premier League has actually gone down since we've been in it. I, I would say the first season. And this may be my perception because I think we had a few bad decisions going against second season. But first season, I thought actually generally it was pretty good. I didn't see any sort of, I didn't think we had any games that we really lost with referees. There wasn't really any major issues. Hmm. Second season, then I, th- I felt we had quite a few, which is why I was really glad when VAR came in. My feeling was that there were quite a few re- decisions that went against us, which were 50-50 and then, you know, or, or even less so. And I thought VAR hopefully would solve some of that. To my view, VAR, we were discussing VAR off air as well. All it solved is the offsides were by like two two millimetres that no one was complaining about in the first place are now offside. But it hasn't actually so, you know, solved things like, for example, the blatant dive by, by Batshuayi on when, when Lamptey breathed near him wasn't overall, which it should have been. And I, I find the whole thing really weird. And we were discussing off air. I, I, I really think they should have to justify VAR decisions. You know, have to explain why they've not overruled it or why they've backed it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sorry, Steve. Yeah, back to you. I mean, the thing I was going to say there, just as a continuation, in my opinion as a referee, I would have no issues if they, because they record all the conversations between the VAR booth and the on-field referee. Um, They are recorded. Why they can't be broadcast live, you know, whether it's to the people in the stadium because nothing worse than we've been in the stadiums when VAR's conducting a review and we know nothing about it. You know, so we need, we need I think, as, as a refereeing fraternity, we need more transparency um, to, to, to really win back some of the public confidence in us because I think VAR has undermined it this season. Because I feel now that if a referee's asked to go and look at the pitch side monitor because of the decision he's made on the field of play, he's more than likely going to change his mind because he's feeling obliged to rather than yes. yeah. the reason behind it, you know, was it the correct on-field decision? The one we had against Southampton, which you spoke about off air, when the foul was clearly outside the box. And yet, the referee and I thought of that, and I, as I said earlier, I watch it through just referee spectacles most of the time, thinking that was a correct decision, well played, given the pace that they were moving at. And yet VAR intervenes and says, I think it was inside the box. The referee's then more inclined to go over, look at it, and go, oh, you might be right. And then he changes his mind and a penalty's given. 
you know so I think there needs to be some tidying up of the technology now we've got to think cricket has used it brilliantly but it took them a number of years to get that correct and now they you know they have umpires call which mm. I think is the right thing to do you know and it works really well for them we just need to fine-tune open up the communications between you know the assistants and VAR then you don't have the transparency then people do not think there's cover-ups or whatever conspiracy theories that are going on hmm. yeah. yeah I agree about cricket I think they do it really well the one issue is with catches for example in cricket it can take three four minutes and no one worries because it's a six-hour day Obviously, with a 90-minute football match, that's quite a long time. And where, where I struggle is that uh, uh, there's a clear and obvious error, but they've been looking at it for three minutes. How is that a clear and obvious error in that situation? Mm. I, mean, I, I would say yeah. there should be a time limit on it if you're going to overrule a decision yeah. a minute or something well, like that, because it should be that obvious. I mean, in the circles that I frequent when I have our referee meetings, you know, we talk about it often enough. And you know, at the levels that we do, we don't have VAR, obviously. But we feel if a decision can't be made within 30 seconds, then you go with the on-field judgment call. Yeah. Hmm. The, the equivalent of umpire's call. <clears throat> because it should be clear enough. Yeah, because it makes no sense. Yeah, I was going to say, it should be a tool or an aid, shouldn't it, to help? As you said, the, the biggest flaw for referees is the fact that they've only got one view. They're, they're a human being, they've only got one view of the game, and they've got it in real time as, as it stood before VAR. Now they've got this tool they could use. They can be afforded the luxury of having a different view, a different perspective, which might cast light on a decision, uh, on a situation. And that's where we wanted it to be used. We wanted it, sorry, as a rather loud sports car going past. Sorry about that, guys. Um, yeah, it's, we want it to be used to facilitate aid, to, en to, to enhance and help refereeing decisions. But when it's starting to almost take a life of its own on, as Peter's talking about the offside thing there, that's where it's taking away from the spirit and the essence of football as I see it. Um, and I'm sure, you know, I'd imagine referees are a little bit, as you said, in despair, the fact that they are almost feeling obliged to make decisions based on a different criteria to, to the general pure refereeing that they would normally do. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I've... I'm personally at the, at the stage at the moment as a fan, and I think, Peter, you've said the same, they were pretty much done with VAR from being generally broadly in favour of it when it was introduced because of how badly it's been applied. That's just speaking as fans. And I know some some decisions have been improved by VAR. There's no doubt about that, but others haven't. And it is a bit, I think, it needs some drastic surgery, um, certainly some major adaption to to make it workable i think going forwards um i'd like your views on that in a minute steve but andy i think you wanted to come in there didn't you yeah i mean um uh, look um like you i was a fan of well i i was not necessarily a fan but i welcomed its in introduction um that's been called into question the one thing that i will say is if you actually have a look at the second half of the season, there weren't too many issues with it, actually. Um, uh, but I certainly um, agree with um, the kind of 30-second rule. The one thing that I, I just can't understand, because all the getting the um, compasses out and the, the geometer, I, I just don't understand why they don't introduce a rule that it's done by your fit, what the position of the player's feet um, rather than bringing everything else in. Um, I, I, 
I can't see how that would be problematic. It used to be down to when they first the offside rule was you could only be offside with something that you could score with, i.e., you know, top of your shoulder, your head, your leg. So when they're ruling out goals when your arms in an offside position, for me, that's fundamentally wrong because you can't score with your arm. And that's one of the things where they need to fine-tune some of the laws of the game, which is, right, what constitutes being in an offside position? And that's something we certainly talk about at our society meetings is we do think there needs to be a little bit of tidying up of the laws of the game to enable a bit more clarity on it. But... Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think the issue also we have now is there's two different types of football in a way. There's football with VAR and football without VAR, whereas before it's been a generally level playing field and you could apply a rule... For me, football, you should they should be they should be looked they should be looking at changing a rule with VAR to offside being a clear daylight again like it was in the past. But obviously then you've got to change it to the whole of football. And that was obviously used before and didn't necessarily work that well or they 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 decided to change it for a reason. And that is a part of the problem in a way that, you know, VAR will be used in top divisions but won't be used at all levels and, and that makes it you know harder. And of course I, I understand that gold line technology won't be used in all levels, but but obviously, you, know, you just go with what you can there. But decision making with VAR, you can't change the rules for VAR because, in a way, they'll they have to be changed for every level, and that most levels don't have VAR. Hmm. Which is why IFAP, who are our governing body on making the laws of the game, reviewing them, we have a section within IFAP for games that involve VAR technology of what decisions can be looked at what can't so they are trying to adapt look we know if you go down to preston park on a sunday morning you've got neither goal line technology or var <clears throat> to assist you you've got uh club club linesmen's and the man and his dog giving you their two pence worth as to what was a foul and what wasn't so that inequality will happen throughout the game yeah what do you think about the offside on var do you think that given the, the, you know, obviously there's a question mark about when the ball was kicked and whether they got the kind of split screen exactly when it was kicked. Do you think it would be helped if, if they changed the rule to daylight between players rather than being level and the, the toe being ahead or something? Or I would, I would, From a personal perspective, I would always say there needs to be clear daylight between the attacker. But what bit constitutes clear daylight? Because then that brings you on to that. Is it the mm. whole body or is it yeah. the scoring part? So... There's lots of mechanics within it to decide whether or not there is clear daylight. So you just open up yet another can of worms mm. on it. And that's why I sort of go back to my other point. It, it should only be things that you can score with. Yeah. I agree. Bamford had his goal disallowed for Leeds against Palace because his arm yeah. or his elbow was in front of the last defender. Yeah, I, I think it is ridiculous, isn't it? That that particular situation. You're right about that. But but the other thing is, with you, you said about changing the parameters, and and you'd still have this subjectivity and this exact finite thing of you know with the, with the frames per second and judging whether it's exactly off or not. But I do think um, I agree with that. But I do think that if you if you have it so that um, the the parameters are that the player who's the attacking player um, has to be more tangibly 
beyond as as the as the set it as the rule as the ruling so the daylight thing basically if you've got that as the setting i think where you've then got the very minuscule finite detail of exactly where his trailing foot is compared with the chasing foot of the defender for example whatever it might be i think if if you get that wrong it doesn't feel to me as if it would be so bad because um because he's already gone a bit beyond so it might you, you have still got this technical mistake could still be made or, or debated but i, I feel I like it would just yeah I, I think with var they've gone too far to be too minuscule with being offside yeah so they you know rather than giving themselves any leeway they've mm. they've taken it to the nth degree and now we're we're bringing out slide rules yeah, you know, for it to work out if people are offside, and then that takes that time. Yeah, you know? and then if we introduce, say, a thirty-second rule within it, because what do we love about sport or football in general is that spontaneity, the goal yeah. going in. You know, nothing worse than just waiting to cheer in case it gets ruled out. You know, we we jump around like headless chickens because we just scored a goal. We get that endorphin rush of scoring, and that's what we're mm. beginning to lose. You know, yeah, it's just yeah, exactly. Yeah, Rob, it's interesting because um, me and Russ, is, Russ was saying, we're both in favour of it. But um, someone we both know who's been on the show, who's quite regular on the show, Robin was saying he was against the AR coming in at the start for that reason, and he's been proved to be honest, completely right. Because yeah, when we score these days, I'm always like, oh, is there something there? Is there an offside? Is there? And I kind of celebrate, but it's not quite the same as you're almost kind of second celebrating when VAR there's no sign of any VAR check or something like that, and it, and it does take away the best moment in football, well, other than holding on to a brilliant win against, I suppose, like someone as well. But in, in essence, the best moment, the reason we all go to football. And, and I, yes. what you were saying earlier about umpire's call, I think for offside is perfect. I think they, they should allow that, 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 yeah, that leeway, either change it to, to daylight between them, or if you, you may be right that there's the same problems there, then, then give umpire's call. So if it's, if someone, because of the fact they can't exactly pinpoint when it's kicked quite often in the, in the clips, if someone's toe is, two millimetres ahead of someone if it's given as a goal then don't then give it as a goal yeah and another person who was against it from the off was tim vickery the south american football correspondent he's very much a guy who speaks with a lot of passion about the game he's absolutely in love with the game and you've used the word spontaneity there and i think that word plus passion are the two words that drive football it's quite un-british actually isn't it because we're very reticent we almost waiting to cheer almost sounds like a british thing doesn't it but in fact we are the opposite when it comes to football it's 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 because it's a working class roots maybe i don't know but whatever the reason you know we we thrive on that passion it is people have described scoring a goal as being better than sex or gasmic kind of sort of uh effect and that's crystallization that that really intense moment of scoring a goal for both the, the player uh, for his teammates and for the fans and anyone else associated with the club, like Tony Bloom, who's, who's also a fan going nuts, or whoever it might be, you know, that is a very special, very, very tangible, very visceral moment almost, isn't it? And to lose that spontaneity from it, by by default, also you lose some of the passion from the moment. Um, I, I think he's right, Tim Vickery, from the off. I mean, he, he was against it, and... I'm, I'm, I wasn't, but I can understand where he's coming from because that is the essence of football, isn't it? There aren't many goals scored in a game, usually. Um, and so when they are scored, it's a very special moment. It's 
one of the very few moments in a game which really heightened the passions to that level. And yeah, if you're sitting around debating it in, a, in somewhere in Stockley Park for more than two, two, two and a half, three minutes, then you just know that something's gone wrong there, don't you? So I, I agree. It, it needs to... some of the best moments. You know, think of the the Premier League when Aguero won it, won the Premier League for City for mm. the first time. Imagine if they yeah. had to then wait for three minutes watching to see if it was offside or not. You know, or or in Albion's case, the Rhinel goal at Hereford, or you know, something like that. And if we had to sit oh, there, God. <laughs> that was agony enough, wasn't it? <laughs> some of those moments that are just like you know, such amazing. Amazing moments, and then you know, yeah, taken on with three minutes of sitting there going like, oh, I don't know if that was a goal or not. You know, and especially as you were saying earlier, Steve, at, at the ground, quite often you've literally no idea what's going on. It's not even like you're on TV; it's on TV and you're watching it. You've kind of got a vague idea. At the ground, you're just sitting there completely blank, no idea. Sometimes even not knowing what's been picked up. Well, well, I think you know, with the pandemic as we've had it, and we've all been forced to watch games from home. We know when a VAR check's being on because the TV companies are showing it. They're not doing that in the grounds. Yeah. You know? So you're and getting a raw deal as a paying member of the public yeah. versus someone who, yeah. who's more or less watching for free at home. And I mean, yeah. the biggest class I thought this year for VAR, and, and I won't involve a Brighton game because there's probably too many contentious ones, and I'll try and be neutral with it, was the uh, Fulham West Ham game this season. <clears throat> when oh, yeah. When Suchek, um, I think it was Dean, unfortunately, yeah. Mike Dean was mm. called to the booth because he was, he was said it's a possible red card offence and he viewed it. So he was almost being advised that it was a red card. So changed his mind, in my opinion, to go back and then show Thomas Tuchek the red card. So VAR, so he'd got it wrong by only giving a yellow. VAR had given it as a red or advised that it could be a red. So... He viewed it and then said, yes, it was a red card offence, so off you go. West Ham appeal, and they won the appeal. And actually, I thought VAR was meant to resolve those kind of issues. And yet, so you've got three different opinions on what yeah. what was done on one thing. And it was the second in a week for Dean as well. Because yeah. Lampton had one overruled against Man U as well, didn't they? After they did, the- yeah. In that nine nil, and that was the it was the same. It was him both refereeing, but also the same VAR official as well. Who I can't remember who it was, but I think it was the same VAR official in both occasions who advised to go and have a look at the screen as well. Yeah. Yes, I believe um, speak- you are correct. I think it's Bednarek, wasn't it? That was sent yeah. off. Yeah. I can't remember who yeah, the VAR referee was, but I remember it being. Yeah. Speaking of remembering names, Andre Mariner's the name we we're trying to think of earlier. Andy posted <laughs> it up, and he's had to leave us now. So thanks to Andy for joining us today. Um, uh, Steve, you mentioned about fine tuning of the of the system for for VAR and um, communication channels in terms of should should information be conveyed to people in the stadiums. A- apart from that, what else do you think we need to do with VAR, if anything, to change it beyond that? And in general, with the laws of the game and any of the subsequent rules, um, what what would you like to see changed? Um, well, I think I've, I've had my bit on on VAR. You know, with the say a thirty-second ruling, slight hmm. um, amendment to the offside rule um, to allow <clears throat> so there's clear daylight. So and I think that, and they will they will fine tune it, and that we're doing it year on year. If you think the first time it came through, you know the technology was there to help us, it's not there yet, and I think it's made it worse at the moment rather than better. Hmm. Um, so for that. 
so my biggest one will be a 30 second ruling within it i also think there needs to be better communication for for referees to explain their decision process you know i'm not a fan of it straight after the game because raw emotions come through um managers are not allowed to see the referee for 30 minutes after a game and that's stipulated in the laws because everything's raw shall we say yeah um yes but referees aren't allowed to explain and it may be there needs to be that happy medium of referees not coming onto tv straight away because it will be trial by tv and that is that is half the problem because of all the decisions you'll make you'll have key match incidents that will please one set and not the other and that's and that's part of football that we've all got to love and loathe shall we say as a as a supporter of a team you know the referee will make that decision but if we know and it's you know generally from the angle that they had that's what i saw that's why i gave it actually i think as supporters we're more likely to think okay i can see why you gave it i still don't agree but at least i know why but i'm not in favor of it going on to tv straight afterwards because TV has become very much that soundbite for it. And they're trying to get clickbaits out of it to try and hammer the referee again after the game as they've done throughout the commentary on the game. You know, I think I said to you off air, players can make mistakes all over the field of play. Referees mm-hmm. are not allowed to make them. They are, <clears throat> they've got to be 100% accurate for both teams all the way through. And that's impossible because we're human and we will make errors. So if we can do a bit of mitigation as to why you made decisions, then I think that will go some way to help it. Yeah, I agree completely there. I think it's, yeah, um, I understand completely where you're coming from. Players make errors all the time. My issue is that players and managers get brought up on it in the media heavily and that sort of thing have to have to come out after the game. Otherwise, they're fined and the club are fined and that sort of thing. So if there are potential refereeing decisions, I think the referee should have to, to justify it, whether that is having VAR... Overheard. I mean, I think rugby do it really well in terms of the the, 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 yep. the official of it is, um, you know, talking and you can actually hear what they're saying on a microphone. I think that's brilliant, and I I think referees should be doing it. And I actually do think it would help referees long term because they would, you know, people even if they don't agree with it would understand where they're coming from, and that would yeah, be something. As I, as I said earlier in the pod, I'm up for those communication channels being open aired for it, you know, because they are. Match officials are recorded for training purposes, as we like to say. Um, but it would be one of those things of, right, what have you seen? Right, I've seen this. What do you agree with it? Or have I missed something from the angle that I've had, from the 52 angles that you've got? Should I be making a different decision? And, I, and I've got no issues with that being broadcast because it gives that transparency and clarity to the decision process. And then managers can't come out and say, well, it was a rubbish decision because they now know. They may not agree with it because... They get the logic at least. Yeah, because I mean, I, I, I brought it back up earlier because it was such an annoying decision. But I genuinely would be interested to know from the VR official at Palace why they still, they didn't look at VAR and go, that was clearly not a penalty. I'm genuinely, it, it, to me, it's the most obvious example of a clear and obvious error yeah. that I've seen because this of... season. I mean, Steve, you've been a regular listener, as I understand it, and um, you would have heard me moaning about the decisions, yeah. and I don't think we've had the balance of decisions at all this season. Would you agree with that as well? And also, an answer to Peter's question about the 
dispatch Y incident with Lamptey, that just seems a no-brainer, doesn't it? We have we've had out a raw deal, haven't we? If you take your Albion specs off for a moment, um, I think I saw a stat though to say that we'd won more points because of VAR decisions than we've lost. Hmm. So, so we would always anchor on to those poor decisions that go against us. Hmm. You know, is that not the is that not the um, decisions that should be that were actually the correct decisions versus other decisions in VAR which weren't weren't the correct decision, if you see what I mean. But, I mean, it's the West Brom game, for argument's sake. You mm. know, we we got given two penalties. VAR mm. assisted with those. Again, the fact we couldn't score either of them was neither here nor there. <laughs> um, the goal VAR that was... did also steal our goal as well. Um, I'll, I'll pick you up on that. They didn't <laughs> steal the goal. VAR actually acted within the laws of the game. Because the whistle had blown before the ball had crossed the line. So therefore, under the laws of the game, the ball was dead. So the incorrect call was by Mr. Mason blowing his whistle twice. Well, also, I just looked up was the <coughs> when Suchek got sent off as well, the yes. VAR. Yes, um, and he was one of the to the Man United. He was the VAR for, for Suchek. So I think he's retired, hasn't he? So, yeah. he, after the West Brom game... I believe he picked up a, an Achilles injury and hadn't recovered in time before the end of the season. I think he's now um, retired from active refereeing, but is retaining the spot within the Stockley Park VAR booth. So he'll mm. still be operating as that. But so Lee had actually, because he had blown the whistle twice, the ball was dead. So when so VAR was looking at had the ball crossed the line mm. before the whistle had been blown. Do we know that that's correct? correct? Cause I... <clears throat> that was true or not, because they drew the lines. Yeah. It wasn't in any way clear it was true to me. Well, I'm, I'm not sure when the if the ball had crossed the line before or after the whistle. We've mm. seen footage um, where it looks very, very close in terms of... As, and it, and yeah. it's, like, it's similar to the offsides that yeah. we talked about. Yeah. Is so it even synced? We don't know. It's like the frames in the offside, isn't it? So VAR yeah. had ruled that the whistle had blown before the ball across the line. So mm. therefore, I mean, we can pick up and digest the inaccuracies yeah. of Lee Mason's decision to blow the whistle again. But just because cause the ruling is, and I think this is probably where you picked up myself as a referee, because I think I answered one of your Twitter posts mm. about yeah. the only person that has to be ready at a free kick is the referee. If the attacking side asks the referee, can I take a quick free kick? And the referee goes, yes, they may take it. If the goalkeeper, as Sam Johnson was at that point, still on his post trying to get his wall, isn't ready, that's tough. Hmm. He's not ready. The referee said he's ready, and that's all that needs to be ready at the taking of a quick free kick. Which is why players stand in front of the free kick all the time, because they don't want the... To stop it going quickly. Yeah, you know. So, mm. and we clearly saw Lewis Dunn ask the referee, "Can I go quick?" And he said yes. He nodded his head and then blew the whistle. So Lewis yeah. took the free kick and passed it into the goal. So we are hard done by, but not ripped off by the law. Just hard done by by a bit of an unfortunate refereeing In- well, tangle- then, entanglement, should we say? Yeah, but that's okay. We got two penalties in the game and. Oh yeah, there's yeah, no question we should have it anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm not like, yeah, I'm not arguing with that anyway in that, but it was a pretty useless bit of refereeing to 
you know, if he wasn't, if he should, if he were worried about the keeper being ready, he should have checked that. And if he wasn't, yeah. then he should have so, on. so if I was in that situation when I'm on the field of play, if a player comes to me and says, "Can I take a, a quick free kick?" I'll normally have a look at where the goalkeeper is, and then say, "I'm not ready myself." So no, because otherwise you can oh, okay. have worms for yourself, as has mm. happened at the West Brom game. Um, is because if I say no, then they can't take it. There's quite a questionable area. It's quite a questionable era, um, area, isn't it? Because it's sort of almost like an unsporting thing to to allow on behalf of a team a quick free kick against another team. It could be deemed as a little bit. It feels a bit like it might be a bit off. <laughs> Let it, as you said, you're you're, you're using the um, "I'm not ready" thing you there in that example. To, hmm, yeah, you know. it does feel like um, a bit of a contentious area. I've got to say, there's, there's a lot of subjectivity to it a lot of scope isn't there between what should and, and a could lot of refereeing happen. is subjective as we know, mm. you know what yeah. is deemed a foul what is not what referees will take on uh, foul yeah. and abusive language you know mm. tolerance levels are different so and actually sometimes you'll adapt your game depending on how the game that you're doing is going mm. so if you've got a game that's beginning to get a bit tetchy you'll deliberately slow it down so at every free kick yeah. you'll stand by it so they can't go quick so yeah. that's part of what you would call your game management, hmm. you know, to get tempers down or adrenaline down on certain players. I've gone up to players before who have who are raging, and I'm talk. And I walk up to him very slowly, and he goes, "What? What? What?" And I'll say, no, "I'm actually only talking to you now because I'm stopping you. You're going to get yourself sent off in a minute if you keep up like this." So actually, by the time you return to your defensive duties, you would have calmed down a little bit, and will not then lunge in with a challenge. So you're trying to manage those players. Yeah, which again, you don't have to do, but I think it, I, I would call that good refereeing, though, because yeah. you're you're managing the game, you're you're keeping the spirit of the game, you're you're not letting it turn into a complete farce by allowing the game to get out of control, you know, in, in terms of amongst the players. So I, I think that's good refereeing, and um, more 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 to that, really. Yeah, uh, Peter. Yeah. I think the I think the issue is when you have a referee like that, and then the next week you have a referee who, the first minute you put a tackle in and it's a yellow card, and mm. it's you're never going to get that consistency. And I think that's where VAR was always flawed because you're still relying for the decisions that aren't offside on two blokes, basically two men or or women possibly who are, have their own views and will even on TV screen will have different opinions on what should be overruled and what shouldn't be. And it's it's not going to be the be all and end all and make it consistent between all all referees. It's going to be the same th- same issues because one man might o- one one referee might overturn it one week, but then the next week another referee won't overturn it because they won't see it as clear and obvious error, and that's and that's where um, I think the expectation with VAR was it would fix all of that, and it didn't, and it's never going to. No, but you get that even in punditry, don't you? Where you've got one that was definitely penalty. Never in a million yeah. years was the response. And actually, yeah. what we do love about football is that spontaneity the personality that comes out in certain referees, you know, yeah. and the same with players, you know, we're, we're not all robots, which is where sometimes people think we should be because we're all hum- humans. We've got human nature. We've got different characteristics that make us different referees. Look at Kalinas. I think Andy mentioned earlier when he was on, you wouldn't mess with him because that stare was just icy. You, know, <laughs> you knew where you, you stood with him, but he garnered respect because of it. You know, yeah, so absolutely other decent referees, and yes, there are certain referees that you think when they get appointed to a Brighton game, you think, "Oh God, no, not him again." 
you know. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, they are human themselves. They will have good games. They will have bad games. Yeah. And there's some good ones out there. And I mean, Kuipers is good good ref. I think the ref that did the Champions League final, uh, I thought it handled that game very well. I know they're at the top of their game, those guys, but, you know, it, it's good to see good refereeing in there. And I think it's yeah, a judgment it's called. It's a, it's, it's a game of opinions, isn't it? Both yeah. both for fans and for referees. Well, for everyone, really, for players as well. I and think the interesting thing is the referees don't tend, English referees used to be like key for World Cups and Euros, and it doesn't feel mm. like so many are now. They don't get the big games, and that's it feels like maybe that's because the referee in this country maybe is seen as declining compared to Europe, possibly. I mean, I don't know. I might be wrong here, but... I don't well, know. I think, you know, I think our last referee to do a major final was Michael Oliver. You know, and he's mm. still regarded as one of the top officials on the UEFA panel list. Um, but, yeah. there are, you know, referee standards are going up around our European partners, you know, which mm. is why they get a lot of finals. And obviously, English teams have done well get into your files and therefore you can't have a home referee within those finals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I feel, Steve, we could probably go on all night about this. I'm, I'm pretty sure we could, and for we'll many nights, in fact. Exactly. I mean, you're literally the perfect... Uh... <laughs> well, we've got Dermot Gallagher doing Ref Watch for Sky. I'm, I'm actually thinking here, it might be quite good whenever there's anything contentious happening, we should get you on in, in the aftermath of that for our match Where's review episodes. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think? Would you be out for that? I'll be your Dermot Gallagher. How's that? <laughs> Excellent. We don't want any of this ref, ref union business. I Walton. I mean, it's, it's yeah. been good, actually, with, with especially with Peter Walton. I know he's coming in for some criticism, but I've been watching the BT Saturday daytime coverage a bit more than um, Sky now and uh, when I'm at home and there's not an Albion game on. And actually, it's quite entertaining. It's, it's, I think it's quite nice to see the human side of the ref, so I, to speak. I just still can't get over him giving a penalty to Southampton about six yards outside the area <laughs> in an away game about ten years ago. So Breaking uh, news, Pete, Peter it, yes. holds grudge. Uh, shocker. I know, it's surprising, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Who would have known it? But no, that would be great. We'd love to have you back on multiple occasions, Steve, because I think there's so much more we yeah, can learn. Really I mean, interesting to have you on. Because yeah, I mean, we're, we're just fans, ultimately. We're, we're waffling on as fans. You know, we don't know the intricacies of the rules, the nuances, some of the workings behind the scenes. So it's always good to get um, the inside of you on, on various aspects, refereeing certainly amongst them. So uh, that would be good. It's been great to have you on today. I hope you've enjoyed your debut. Um, Thank you very much for having me. Excellent. It's been good. And it's been a pleasure to sit there looking at you with that William Barkley shirt on in the back, shirt in the background in the frame there. Absolute splendid. That is absolutely splendid. So thank you very much then to Steve Farris for joining us for his debut. Thanks as usual to Andy Knott and to my co-host Peter. I'm now breaking this off in order to then waffle on for another couple of hours uh, about films on my Film Fives podcast with my good mate Phil Newman, who's also an Albion fan and listener to the show. Hi, Phil. Um, if you want to check that out, please do. It's available on all good platforms and some bad ones as well. In the meantime, thanks again to Peter and to Steve and to Andy, and we'll sign off in the usual way by saying, stand or fall at the Albion. 
So we record our podcast on Bank Holiday Monday, and no sooner do we do that, but there's loads more news to talk about. The managerial merry-go-round has escalated even further, with news overnight and into today that, in fact, it isn't going to be Conte going to Real Madrid, it's going to be Carlo Ancelotti. Um, apparently a deal done with um, with him. They're just arranging the details with Everton for the move. That sparked a load of speculation, of course, into who Everton will be going for. Amongst the names, people mentioned Nuno, but apparently Nuno has been in talks with Crystal Palace for the last three days and seems set to join them. He's the favourite to do so. That will be a disastrous appointment from a Brighton point of view. We hope that doesn't happen. Um, I think he could do a good job there. Let's hope it, that it doesn't happen, and if it does, that he fails. Um, so that's, that's the managerial merry-go-round in full swing. We've also had the news today of the England squad announcement. It's been thinned down by seven to the 26-man squad now, and sure enough, Ben White has been left out of that shortened squad list. Um, along with Godfrey as well. Both have been left out. Lingard has been left out, which is bizarre, given his form. Others have dropped out due to injury, including Mason Greenwood, uh, but Trent Alexander-Arnold did make it in. So, yeah, plenty more news kicking off. There's also speculation of the Albion being interested in Alan Velasco. Rumours of a six-mil bid either being prepared or being made. Um, I have very little... Um, trust in any rumours really but it's worth reporting as it's a a previous one that's recirculated so I I wonder what might be going on there that's uh, Independiente player from um, from Argentina. Anyway, that's it for the extra update on top of all the football news we've already brought you this weekend and into the beginning of this week and we'll sign off again stand or fall up the Albion Sports Social Podcast Network Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.